0: Look, I'll cut right to the chase. Modern pop culture does not exist without Hong Kong cinema. If you think I'm exaggerating, let me present my case. During the height of production, Hong Kong movies were the main attraction in Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia. They eventually took the world. You'd be hard pressed to find anyone in any country who hasn't heard of Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan. Recently, Everything Everywhere All At Once has reintroduced a new generation to the superb Hong Kong alumni, Michelle Yeoh. But wait, there's more! The choreographed stunts of Hong Kong martial arts movies redefined how major movie industries stage fight scenes. Hollywood and Bollywood have responded to the popularity of kung fu movies by changing drastically the way they stage fights. Japan and South Korea, while having their own influential tradition of martial arts, incorporated many themes and tropes of heroic bloodshed. There is no Quentin Tarantino without John Woo and the Shaw Brothers. But it goes even deeper than that. Japanese comics or manga in the late 70s and early 80s heavily borrowed tropes and characters from Hong Kong movies. And what about video games? The influence is all over the industry. What is the first Mortal Kombat, if not a gorier, more supernatural, Enter the Dragon? And music? Take hip-hop. The Wu-Tang Clan, even their name is a nod to the Shaw Brothers, their music and stage names being full of references to Kung Fu flicks. And then the Soviet Union's megastar Viktor Tsui counted Bruce Lee as one of his idols and modeled his cool swagger and acting after the movie legend. Many of the repertoire of breakdancing in the 80s was learned by watching double feature matinees of martial arts flicks. Mixed martial artists credit Bruce Lee's philosophy as a major inspiration. So does parkour. I rest my case. So how did such a small colony have such a huge impact on the world? Why did the movies resonate with so many people? All the tropes we're familiar with, hidden techniques, revenge, secret societies, the underdog master-disciple relationships, they all have a rich history behind them. Shaolin, Wu-Tang, triads, kung fu. What's the history behind these very familiar words? How did gunfights in movies go from simple shooting to stylized bullet ballets we find today in movies like John Wick? And why is Hong Kong so important in geopolitics? How did the movies shape, explore, and challenge the identity of Hong Kong? I want to dwell on these questions and more in the next 4 episodes. This time, instead of a chronological history, each episode will focus on a different genre of Hong Kong movie. We'll look at the main players, some big movies, and the history and ideas behind each genre. But first, some background. China in the 19th century was not in a great position. The Manchus, an ethnic group from the north, had taken over China and established the Qing dynasty in 1644. But the rulers of what was once a strong and mighty empire, now 200 years later, found themselves in a precarious position. The European powers used their modern military might to force the Chinese government into unequal treaties and squeezed concession after concession from them. Even Japan, once regarded as a subservient country, a little brother, started flexing its newfound industrialized muscle and made demands on China. The mocking term for the weakened China plodding along was the sick man of Asia. Internally, things were a hot mess. Foreigners, that is mostly traders from Europe, set up shop in special trade zones known as cantons. And the British traders had this new commodity that the locals were dying to get their hands on. Literally. British sailors had started racking up the bucks by selling opium in the black markets. Widespread addiction. The Qing government not happy with having an opioid epidemic on their hands, told the British to knock it off. The British said, Make us. War broke out. A decisive British victory ended with the empire seizing parts of the Chinese coast. Around the same time, a young man failed his civil service examination, had a nervous breakdown, started believing he was the brother of Jesus Christ, and went on to lead the Taiping, resulting in the bloodiest civil war in history. And then, Mere decades later, a secret society claiming to have mastered the technique of becoming bulletproof went on a massacre known as the Boxer Rebellion in a bid to expel all foreigners from China. That did not end well for them. The Qing dynasty's structure was shaky, and people grew dissatisfied with Manchu rule. More and more authors, activists, and revolutionaries called for the end of the Qing, and it happened in 1911. The Imperial System of China a system that had been in place since 221 BC, was no more. But instead of a happily ever after, chaos. Warlords fought each other Mad Max style for control over the country. The government set in place after the fall of the Qing were powerless to stop these men. Eventually the power struggle came down to the Kuomintang nationalists and the communists. Except, Japan decided to throw their hat in the game. A brutal occupation from the Japanese empire tore China apart Until the end of the Second World War, the Kuomintang and the communists set aside their differences to fend off the new colonial power. But they resumed fighting immediately after. More civil war. And in 1949, the communist party led by Mao Zedong won. And the Kuomintang with their leader Chiang Kai-shek escaped to Taiwan. Look, I know. I understand that what I did was essentially speedrun through an era that could fill libraries with stories. But I hope you get the idea. Things. Were bad, not good, a mess. No wonder the period is bitterly remembered as the century of humiliation. So where does Hong Kong fit into all of this? The area today known as Hong Kong, including Kowloon and the New Territories, were originally the trading outposts set up for foreigners. This Canton system, as it was known, was controlled by a small group of elite Chinese families who had final say on how the trade went. The British got Hong Kong after the First Opium War. That's right, first, there's gonna be another one, but that's not within the scope of our episode. A man named Charles Elliot was quite happy with the territory he was now in control of, though others thought he was fooling himself. Hong Kong back then was an underdeveloped, swampy, obscure port, nothing like the sexier ports of Singapore that the British had recently taken over, but Elliot saw potential in the place. The relatively calm waters of Hong Kong Bay could prove to be a safe harbor and a place of relatively free trade. By 1898, the British and Qing government had come to an agreement. The territories that the British were occupying were leased to them by the Chinese for 99 years. They had until 1997 to do what they will with the place. So Hong Kong did indeed end up being a safe harbor in more ways than one. Merchants migrated to Hong Kong early on, seeing more opportunities outside of the oligarchic Canton system. Hong Kong was also seen as a safe harbor during the Taiping Civil War. Many revolutionaries stayed in Hong Kong, away from the Qing authorities, while they were planning the fall of the dynasty. The warlord period, the civil war, the Japanese occupation also saw an influx of migration. Although the last one might have been a miscalculation. People escaped into Hong Kong believing that Japan wouldn't dare attack a British colony. They were wrong. Japan dared. On Christmas Day 1941, Japan invaded Hong Kong. But migration kept going after the end of the war, up until the Communist Party had had enough and put stricter control on the borders. All of this isn't to say that Hong Kong was a wonderful place for the migrants or the natives. It was still a British colony, and it acted like a colony. The city was organized on clear-cut racial lines, the white British were in control, and the majority of the population were shut out of the political decision-making process. They weren't even allowed to own land initially. The rule was relaxed, but there were still zones exclusively for British citizens, and the real estate reflected the clear racial divide of the city. This caused an interesting mix in Hong Kong. One example is language. As a British colony, English was the primary language of business and politics. The natives of Hong Kong speak a dialect of Chinese called Cantonese, while many of the immigrants spoke the common mainland dialect of Mandarin. We say dialects, but Cantonese and Mandarin are not mutually intelligible. That is, if you spoke Mandarin, you would not understand Cantonese without studying it. And yes, this is relevant to the movie industry of Hong Kong, which we'll see shortly. So cinema then? When cinema first started in China, the main hub of movie activity was Shanghai. Sure, Hong Kong had a budding little industry, but Shanghai housed the major players. It was after the Japanese invasion and the communist takeover that massive parts of the Shanghai movie industry found more opportunities in Hong Kong. And one of those who moved was Run Run Shaw. The youngest of six brothers, Run Run Shaw was born to a textile merchant family. A very entrepreneurial bunch. His elder brothers were curious about this whole film business and started their own company in Shanghai, which they called Tian And let's just get things out of the way. I will be butchering these names. Apologies in advance and all that. Run Run began his career running errands for the budding business. When they opened a branch in Singapore, he was sent to work there. The brothers continued to expand into other areas, including Hong Kong. After the end of the Japanese occupation and civil war, Run Run Shaw moved to Hong Kong. That was in 1958. He used his experience and ambitions to restructure the company. First order of business, renamed the Tianyi Movie Company to the Shaw Brothers. The new studio was massively successful. Hong Kong cinema was experiencing a post war boom as it became the source of entertainment for the Chinese diaspora all over. The Shaw brothers did what any budding empire builder would do get property. Lots of it. Hong Kong boasted neighborhoods that were the most densely populated in the world. Land prices were exorbitant. The money Run Run Shaw and his brothers made through real estate provided more than enough to make their movie business strong and well funded. Run Run Shaw wanted to revolutionize the movie industry. Back then, the landscape of cinema production was haphazard, an amalgamation of distributors, studios, theaters, actors, and so on that acted almost as freelancers. Studios would run around looking for directors who would sell their movies to the highest bidder, and then distributors would vie for the movie and convince theaters to play them. Shaw introduced an American-style vertical organization, one inspired by Hollywood, where a central industry takes control of the entire production process. He used the land he bought to create a movie studio lot for their films, Movie Town When it was built, it was the largest privately owned movie studio in the world. In a few short years, Run Run Shaw turned the Shaw Brothers into a dominant force. The Shaw Brothers had become an empire in Asia. The West started taking notice, but it was still a vague glimmer from the horizon. They had no idea what was coming. Here's an excerpt from a Time Magazine article in 1961, a decade before the height of the Shaw Brothers' popularity. Quote, all over Southeast Asia, an emblem with the gold initials SB on a dark blue shield is as familiar as the U.S. dollar sign. It stands for the Shaw Brothers, sole owners of the largest show business empire in Asia. Their chain of 120 movie houses and 10 amusement parks in a half dozen countries draws tattooed headhunter warriors from Borneo, Svel Chinese beauties in Hong Kong, battle-chewing peasants in Cambodia, wisp-bearded mandarins in Vietnam, combative Sikhs in Singapore, No one knows better than the Shaw Brothers how to turn a profit from the varied audience. At a recent Singapore cocktail party, a rival movie magnate was asked who the gentlemen in sharkskin were. Replied the rival, Those aren't gentlemen in sharkskin, they are sharks in Shawskin. End quote. Yeah, if you get past the laughably old-timey caricatures, we can clearly see the range of influence Shaw Brothers had. But all that business means nothing if people don't want to watch the movies. Shaw Brothers focused on the most popular genres at the time, from melodramas to musical, with the occasional serious film to send to European film festivals. The Shaw brothers did have one secret weapon, the Kung Fu flick. In English, we use martial arts and Kung Fu more or less interchangeably, but in Hong Kong there is a difference between what's called Wuxia Pian and Kung Fu Pian. Wuxia is the older of the two. It emphasizes play and supernatural ability, one could say maybe a bit more on the fantasy side. To make it simple, Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan, Gongfu Pian. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Wuxia Pian. Gongfu, or Kung Fu as it's known here, means a skill gained after much effort. It doesn't necessarily have to mean a fighting skill, it's anything that's achieved through struggle and practice. In fact, the Korean equivalent of Kung Fu, Gongbu, means to study, as in studying in school or studying for your exams. But before Kung Fu, there was Wuxia. Wuxiao was extremely popular. And what happens when things get extremely popular is that people get bored. Wuxiao's acrobatics were too neat, too pretty. People were looking for something more visceral, more emotionally engaging, more realistic. Realistic. Now, we, we gotta be careful with this word, because in movies, nothing real is realistic. There were still stunts, clever editing, and maybe a bit of trampolines or wireworks to make the Kung Fu hero appear more than human. But there was a certain authenticity in the Kung Fu movies. Authenticity in style, first of all. Kung Fu films incorporated real historical martial arts styles. More authenticity in cinematic contents, too. Rather than have the heroes float in and out of a fight, you get heavy-hitting, bone-crunching, blood-splattering stuff. The kind of action scenes that make you wince and go, oof. Directors, producers, and actors used terms like tough and hard-edged or every punch gets to the flesh to describe what they were seeking. To display the authenticity of style and fight. The flicks relied on wide shots so that moves and the impact of the moves could be clearly and immediately seen. No shaky cams or extreme close-ups, please. Writing took a backseat. Some movies had scripts three pages long with most of the film improvised on set. We didn't want words, we wanted action. The aim was to have a fight scene and have the audiences feel the intensity. Moves like undercranking the camera to make the moves appear faster or the big dramatic zoom ins have a delightfully old timey feel when you watch the movies today. They had a big effect on the time, though. Other cinematic techniques were added to heighten impact, like adding cracking and whipping sounds to add weight to the hits. The old cracks, whoosh, and bams might sound outdated today, but the principle behind them still remains using visceral sounds to sting your ears into registering hits. Could you imagine a fighting game today without the satisfying thwack of a successful attack? So, martial arts and cinema, that was a perfect match. Every culture in the world has a fighting tradition, but what makes Chinese martial arts so popular is its close relationship to arts in general. Most reliable sources of the origins of any martial arts school come from roughly 400 years ago. Although called martial, the military had long moved away from hand-to-hand combat, It was the villagers who formed martial groups, using a mix of weapons, hand-to-hand boxing and wrestling, and it existed mostly as family traditions, bodyguards to wealthy merchants, and village associations that got together to fight off nomadic raiders and bandits. Martial arts, wushu or wuyi in Chinese, had a very long and very close relationship with theater. In the 10th century, the more bookish Song dynasty looked down on fighting as popular entertainment, fine for the masses. The snobbery did not stop you from being beloved by the people. Wrestling and boxing contests attracted massive crowds. Temples, markets, and public spaces wouldn't be complete without people demonstrating their acrobatic and fighting skills in exchange for a few coins. Storytellers recounted heroic exploits, which were reenacted by theatrical troops. Any theater performer worth their salt had to master four skills, speaking, singing, acting, and fighting. During the 10th century, theaters had to register their school, an early example of these martial arts lineages we see today. In the 13th century, Genghis Khan's grandson, Kublai Khan, conquered China and set up the Yuan dynasty. The Mongolian rulers forbade the local populace from carrying weapons and practicing martial arts. But there is one notable exception. The Mongolians loved theater. That got a pass. Fighting styles and weapon expertise thus survived through theater troupes. So, if you're ever watching an old kung fu movie and wonder why all the posing and dance-like choreographs, the elaborate flows and the big dramatic pose at the end came from the theatrical tradition. After a particularly difficult move, the star of the show would have paused and wait for the... uh, I wanna say applause, but did they applaud back then? Did they cheer? I'm honestly not sure. But the star of the show would pause after a particularly impressive move and strike a pose to give the audience time to do whatever audiences did to show appreciation. It was a way to highlight a tradition, to preserve it and keep it going. By the Qing Dynasty, martial arts took on a new role, as a training regimen to stay fit and healthy. The arts from then on were practiced by groups in order to stay strong, limber, and fit to an old age. In the 20th century, martial arts were renamed National Arts and attempts were made by the early government to see them as a way to strengthen and discipline national subjects in service of the nation. Fighting, family traditions, spectacle, healthy living, national identity. Martial art played many roles throughout history, and it still does. Martial art practitioners became legends and heroes. People sitting around tea houses would tell of the great exploits of those who have reached the height of skills. One such example was a man named Wong Fei Hung. Wong Fei-hung was a physician and martial artist in the 19th century. He was an expert in a martial style called Honga. His exploits during the tumultuous times he lived in made him a folk hero. And he was also responsible for the birth of the kung Fu-pian. Over 100 films, and counting, have had Wong Fei-hung as their main character. The earlier ones starred a man named Kwan Tak-hing. In 1949, director Wu Pang created the story of Wong Fei-hung, and then a sequel, and another, and another. The sequels grew in popularity and together Wu and Quan made over 70 Wong Fei-hung movies over the span of 40 years. Wu Pang kept the rights to the Wong Fei-hung character, meaning that companies had to bid with each other for the rights to the new films. Run Run Shaw didn't like this. He made sure that everything stayed within the company. His ironclad contracts were notorious for offering actors little pay, little free time, and little autonomy over the creative process. The appeal of the series was the down-to-earth hero defending the innocent, using real-life martial arts that people would have been familiar with. Rather than take the Fei Hung character, Shaw found what was appealing about the movies and copied them in his own style. And it was a huge success. But as usual, Shaw wanted more. Internationalization was always a big ambition of the Shaw brothers. One way they could secure the international market was to film movies in the more widely spoken Mandarin. The knock-on effect of that was that the native Cantonese of Hong Kong was essentially pushed out of the industry, but that's for another episode. Another strategy was to make joint productions. See, a lot of countries were pretty protectionist when it came to foreign films. There was a quota system in place where theaters had to include a higher percentage of local movies. One loophole is that if the movie is jointly produced, then it could get counted as a local production. So Shaw Brothers frequently collaborated with Taiwan, with Indonesia, with Singapore, and other places to get more of their movies in those theaters. But there was one market that Run Run Shaw was particularly interested in, but could not find an entry point. The United States. He who owns the U.S. market has the world. The U.S. was, and still is to a lesser extent, largely closed to foreign films. Hollywood has a near monopoly over the market. But what a lucrative market it is! Runrun Run Shaw's mouth watered at the prospect of having a share of that pie. But it would be his assistant, Raymond Chow, who got first bite. Raymond Chow at the time, was head of the publicity and head of production at Shaw Brothers, someone real close to Runrun Run Shaw. Chow split with Shaw over creative differences. He formed his own company, the Golden Harvest. At first, the split was amicable. But things went south when Run Run Shaw discovered that Raymond Chow was poaching talents by waiting till their contracts expired and offering them better deals. Golden Harvest struggled. They were up against the juggernaut of the region and needed to find a way to get a competitive edge. And Chow found that edge. So Raymond Chow gave a non-committal offer one day to a relatively pretty decently well-known actor. He wasn't expecting much from it. The actor, also not very interested at first, agreed to sign in for a few movies. This actor was working in the U.S. at the time, but had had a little bit of success. A certain someone that people might know, just a little actor that... Bruce Lee. I'm talking about Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee was born in San Francisco in 1940. His father was a Cantonese opera performer, and his mother from a rich family who left that life to marry the person she loved. The Lees were in the U.S. on an international opera tour when Bruce was born. They returned to Hong Kong just in time to experience the Japanese invasion. Bruce Lee was a hyperactive kid who was known to get in trouble and had a passion for performance. He starred in a few non-martial art movies, became a cha-cha champion, all the while practicing a martial arts called Wing Chun. Bruce Lee moved to the U.S. in 1959 to continue his studies and eventually enrolled in college. He continued practicing his martial arts, challenging other artists all over the U.S. and became one of the first to break nationalist taboo by opening his own academy and taking non-Chinese students. This was considered a pretty big scandal back then. He attracted the attention of Hollywood stars and tough men. He took on students from the biz. These strong Hollywood connections eventually landed him the role in the 1966 TV show The Green Hornet. This was the time when one of the most unexpected hits was Batman. You know, that campy 1960s Adam West one, the one that had the POWs and Zaps and shark repellent sprays. Executives wanted to capitalize on the success by creating another superhero show, this time the lesser-known hero from the radio drama era called The Green Hornet. The Green Hornet was aided by his assistant Kato, played by Bruce Lee, who handled most of the fighting. It only lasted one season, but the impact of Bruce's American debut was lasting. When he went back to Hong Kong, he was shocked to discover the show had made him a celebrity there. The locals were ecstatic to see one of their own lit up on American television. A local flavor, a trendy interest. One could say a curiosity if one were being ungenerous. Raymond Chow was not Bruce Lee's first choice. Golden Harvest was unknown, and he worried that spending more time in Hong Kong would take him away from finding more fulfilling roles in Hollywood. He went to Shaw Brothers but found their contracts way too restrictive. So, Bruce agreed to sign on with Chow. To be fair, Bruce Lee was not Raymond Chow's first choice either. After failing to secure bigger, better stars, Chow decided to make do with this not completely unknown actor. So Bruce Lee signed Raymond Chow's contract, joined Golden Harvest, and the rest is history. From then on, the local flavor of mild interest would transform into an immortal legend. Bruce Lee did not like the way the kung fu film was developing. He himself was a trained martial artist, not a martial arts choreographer. And he found the dance-like aspects unrealistic and unappealing. Although he learned that his fighting style was not made for the camera. His punches and kicks were so fast they didn't register on film. The end result looked sloppy and fake as the audiences couldn't see or really hear the hit landing on the opponent. Again, realism does not mean realistic. But his fighting style was something the world had never seen before. Quote, in our early action films, we used actors who knew little about fighting, Mr. Chow told the New York Times in 1973. We had to use various camera tricks, but the audience can tell the difference. It knows a real fighter when it sees one. That's why Bruce Lee has been such a hit. End quote. But as you might imagine, as a newbie to the scene, Bruce's ideas didn't mesh well with the directors. There were fights, conflicts, threats of walkouts, as Bruce and director Lo Wei struggled for creative control. The result was 1971's The Big Boss. The Big Boss is the story of young Chinese laborer Cheng Chauan, who gets a job in Thailand. The workplace turns out to be a front for a drug ring, and any worker who discovers the secret has two options, join the boss or die. Cheng is conflicted, and not just the physical conflict between him and the boss's goons, Before moving to Thailand, he'd promised his mother he wouldn't fight anymore. Now he's torn between helping his friends out and keeping that promise. A lot of the fights in The Big Boss showed the uneasy compromise between director and actor. Bruce Lee got to use his raw combat skills, but there's also a bit of obvious trampoline work. As Bruce Lee expressed his dislike for the way Hong Kong cinema stage fights, the choreographers didn't like his style either. They thought it was too crude, too simple, too vulgar. They called him Three Kicks Bruce because it seemed like he only knew three kicks and fights would be nothing but those three kicks. Well, the too crude, too simple, too vulgar style seemed to be just what the people wanted. Big Boss wowed the audiences. They had spoken. Whatever Bruce Lee was doing, they wanted more of it. His next film, Fist of Fury, takes place in early 20th century Shanghai. Chen Zhen, played by Lee. Returns to his martial arts academy just in time to bury his master. It is ruled a natural death, but everyone knows the truth. His master was poisoned by the rival Japanese dojo. Chen then embarks on a bloody revenge against these injustices. Aside from his undeniable cool and charisma, Bruce Lee's films resonated with a global audience for their content. Bruce Lee became a folk hero, one who fought for the downtrodden. In Big Boss, Bruce Lee plays a migrant worker's helping out his fellow working class comrades fight an exploitative boss. In Fist of Fury, his academy is challenged by Japanese martial artists who taunt the gym by framing a picture with the words, sick man of Asia. After squarely kicking their ass, Lee takes one of the Japanese fighters and forces him to eat the slogan. Then he utters the word that caused audiences to erupt in cheers. We are not the sick men of Asia. Later on, Bruce Lee tries to enter a compound and is rebuffed by a sign saying No dogs or Chinese allowed. A sign that Bruce Lee breaks with a high kick. In Fists of Fury then, Bruce Lee is using his Kung Fu to literally and symbolically destroy the slogans of racism and colonialism. The world of the early 70s was on fire with civil rights movements, youth protests, former colonies rising against their colonizers, working class general strikes and communist takeovers. In an environment like this, Bruce Lee's fight against racial and national injustices cut very deep. But other than Bruce Lee the actor, Bruce the man also charmed many. Bruce Lee's philosophy of water is well known. Talks about adaptability, going with the flow, refusing to let biases or fixed formalities get in the way. Be like water, my friend. His immortal phrase. A phrase, by the way, that became the unofficial slogan of Hong Kong's protesters in the past few years. Be like water was their ability to slip away from authorities and adapt to their offenses. Bruce Lee expressed this philosophy in his movies, his martial arts, his life. In his movies, scrappy fighters win by going against what's expected in the martial arts styles. Although originally trained in Wing Chun, Lee eventually ended up creating his own school, Jeet Kune Do, which he termed the style of no style, being ready to adapt, modify, and refine your fighting in real spars. Lee thought that martial arts schools had gone soft because they didn't engage enough in actual combat. Without combat experience, the style grew rigid, so he wanted practical moves born out of practical experience. No wonder the MMA crowd loved this guy. Bruce Lee went on an intensive study of all different martial arts he could get his hands on. He'd classify the moves based on how effective they were in real life and how cool they looked in movies. His ability to find the most brutal and effective moves came from his intensive study. Bruce Lee was dedicated to becoming the best he could be. He knew he was destined to be a superstar. In the racially charged 70s, the idea of an Asian actor becoming an action hero was unthinkable. Bruce Lee was rejected over and over again in Hollywood because of that fact. Given the successes of The Big Boss and Fist of Fury, Bruce Lee was given the chance to have much more creative control over his next movie, The Way of the Dragon. The film shows a part of Bruce Lee that was known to his friends and acquaintances, but didn't really appear in his movies before. His sense of humor. The first few minutes of the film are in complete silence, with Bruce's character relying on his face and body language to show his confusion and bewilderment. It must have been quite jarring for people used to the grittiness of Big Boss and Fist of Fury to watch half an hour of of fish-out-of-water comedy as Bruce's characters adjust to life in Italy. But this is not very surprising. Bruce Lee's comedy come from the same source as his martial arts, expressivity. For Bruce Lee, the highest form of martial arts, of acting, indeed of living, was to be able to express the unique in yourself. Whether it's the rage-filled glare after delivering a deadly punch, or the frantic wandering of a person lost in a foreign country, Bruce Lee used his body to convey emotion with the same efficacy. And the payoff was worth it. The final fight between Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris is considered one of the best choreographed fight scenes ever made. It's pointless to try and describe it in audio, and there are plenty of videos out there that have analyzed the hell out of the scene. Bruce Lee was getting harder to ignore. As his fame was rising, he got the call he had always dreamed of. Hollywood rang. They wanted him. They wanted to make a co-production with Hong Kong as a debut for the new Kung Fu action hero. Enter the Dragon tells a story of the tournament hosted by the villainous Han, a disgraced martial arts student, drug lord, and human trafficker. Lee is recruited to infiltrate the tournament and bring Han to justice. Bruce Lee is joined by John Saxton and Jim Kelly, as the three discover the mysteries of the island. Enter the Dragon was released in 1973, and honestly, I'm running out of adjectives to describe what a huge hit this was. Bruce Lee finally achieved the fame he had wanted. He just wasn't alive to see it. Bruce Lee was found dead on July 1973, less than a week before the debut of his movie. The cause of death is still hotly debated to this day. It is the stuff of urban legends. He was only 33 years old. Death just made his stocks go higher. Bruce Lee opened the much-coveted U.S. market to Hong Kong. People were now receptive to Hong Kong movies. Five Fingers of Death, the first official Shaw Brothers movie released in the United States, premiered a little before Enter the Dragon. There was a big demographic shift happening in the U.S. that coincided with Bruce Lee and Kung Fu Mania. In the 60s, more and more white families moved to the suburbs. Living so far from movie theaters made people want to stay home and watch their new invention that every John and Jane just had to possess. Television. Moviegoing was not the event it used to be the industry was radically shifting. There was a new audience to cater to. The majority of moviegoers in the major U.S. cities were black African Americans and Latino. A new genre called black exploitation featured black heroes with infinite cool and swagger, fighting, shooting, and kicking ass against their white antagonists. The trend gave rise to stars such as Fred Williamson and Pam Griers as action heroes for the new age. After Shaw Brothers, these black exploitation characters all started knowing kung fu, just like Fist of Fury or Five Fingers of Death used Kung Fu to fight against Japanese colonialism, black exploitation characters learned the art to stand against the racist structures that was putting them down. Jim Kelly himself, after Enter the Dragon, had a strong career playing martial art heroes in movies. To give the most value to the inner-city audiences, theaters would screen double features. Movies that were cheap to produce and cheap to import would be played side-by-side. And so, kung fu flicks sprung all across the U.S., particularly in New York City. Black exploitation, horror, erotica, and badly dubbed Shaw Brothers movies became the genres of the decade. For a time in the 70s, the list of the top 10 most popular movies in the U.S. always featured a Hong Kong movie. To quote the 1974 Carl Douglas song, Everybody Was Kung Fu Fighting. A song, by the way, credited with popularizing disco Maybe we can stretch things and add disco to the list of Hong Kong influences too. On the other side of the world, bootleg tapes of Enter the Dragon made it to the Eastern Bloc. Soon-to-be-famous rock star Victor Tsui got a hold of one of these tapes and was transfixed by the charisma and power of Bruce Lee. He wore down the tape, watching it over and over, studying Bruce Lee's moves and copied some of the gestures and mannerisms for his own stage and movie work. In 2005... A sculptor in Bosnia and Herzegovina unveiled a statue of Bruce Lee. In an area fresh off of bloody ethnic conflicts and divisions, the artist felt, quote, One thing we all have in common is Bruce Lee, a symbol of loyalty, skill, friendship, and justice, end quote. It was only a few short years, but those years were enough for Bruce Lee to change the landscape forever. With expert timing, Shaw Brothers, Golden Harvest, and others released a slew of kung fu movies all over the world. These tended to be historical, employed the acrobatics of Chinese opera, and emphasized the style of different schools. These also tended to be churned out and of varying degrees of quality, but were cheap to produce and gave the people exactly what they were looking for. Because of that, they proved to be successful from Bangkok to Brooklyn. A few of these titles were quite famous. You got Master of the Flying Guillotine, A Bloody Affair, a Tarantino favorite, and featuring a character who most likely inspired Street Fighter's Dalsam. Then there is Mystery of Chess Boxing. The antagonist of the movie has a name that might be familiar to fans of the Wu-Tang Clan, a certain ghost face Killer. And speaking of Wu-Tang Clan, their main inspiration was a movie by the title of Wu-Tang vs. Shaolin. In this era, there is one name that stands out, director, stunt coordinator, and martial arts grandmaster, Lao Kar Lung. Lao Kar Lung was born in 1934. He trained in the martial arts at the age of nine under his father. His father's lineage of fighting came from Wong Fei-Hung himself. In fact, Lau Ka Erlong Long started his movie career as a choreographer of the Wong Fei-Hung movie series. Like many others, Lau felt that Kung Fu genre was stagnant. After Bruce Lee's death, the movies tended to fall back on predictable formulas in order to release them as fast as possible. There was a need to inject new life in the movies to give the new genre a new direction. In an interview, he said that, quote, Despite our best efforts as much in the filmmaking as in the fights, our movies didn't sell. I told Mona Feng, Shaw's executive president, that I didn't want to do movies for Shaw anymore, and that from now on, I would dedicate myself to teaching Kung Fu in the USA. Mona Feng, who didn't want to let me go, proposed instead that I direct myself my own movies, she asked me if I felt able to give new breath to Kung Fu movies, which didn't draw much of an audience at the time. The fact is that Kung Fu is basically not very variable with always the same gestures and moves. An audience gets very tired of it very fast. I accepted the proposal telling myself that I would try to change completely the style of fights. End quote. Lost solution to movies using the same gestures and moves was to dig deep into martial arts history. Bruce Lee might have wanted no style, but Lau Cor Long was proud of the myriad styles that existed. His movies were a vehicle to give every school a place in the sun. Whether high Shakespearean tragedy like Eight Diagram Pole Fighter or or a screwball comedy like My Young Auntie, Lau Cor Long placed martial arts at the forefront, emphasizing different styles and their utility. Characters would be put in different scenarios where they would be forced to change styles, since each style has its own history and context. The excitement of La Kar Long's movies is watching two fighters be forced to change styles as the environment changes, like being forced to use smaller but more intense punches as the alleyway they're fighting in gets narrower and narrower. At the time, there was something new emerging. You see, Bruce Lee's characters start off the movie as skilled fighters. We see the end result of their kung fu, but not the long, arduous process that got them there. But people were interested in the stories behind the fights, the stunts, and the grueling training regime Bruce Lee was famous for. Behind-the-scenes interest soon became on-screen content. Films showcased more of the training process of the hero. Scenes of the protagonist going through authentic training regimes to get better at fighting tickled the audience's fancy. That's when we begin to see the training montage becoming part of the repertoire of fight movies. Those scenes where the weak protagonist tackles increasingly more difficult challenges in order to become a hero. Of course, training is an essential part of any fighter's life, but it didn't really figure into movie plots very much. And if audiences wanted to see fighters train, audiences got it. Lau Karlong's classic 36 Chambers of Shaolin starred frequent collaborator Gordon Liu as the legendary fighter Sante. The 36 Chambers refers to the different trials Shaolin monks went through, and Sante passes them one by one. A good third of the movie is dedicated to these training montages. We get to see Sante struggle with carrying buckets of water headbutt through sandbags and balance on logs. The sequel, Return to the 36 Chambers, is a comedic variation on the theme. Here Gordon Liu's character masters martial arts thanks to his work building scaffolds around Shaolin. One interesting thing to note is how training involved physical labor. Kung Fu never lost its underdog element. Hell. Return to the 36th chamber start off with a literal labor dispute. Post-war Hong Kong concentrated on rebuilding and industrial labor. The majority of the Chinese population worked in factories, construction companies, and other blue-collar jobs. Most in less-than-stellar conditions, it must be said. You can imagine that to a majority working-class audience, there must have been something ennobling to see their work elevated to a Shaolin training discipline. Shaolin. The name is the stuff of legends. The name is so associated with fighting that some may not know it's an actual place. A Buddhist monastery founded in 495 AD, Shaolin and fighting went hand-in-hand, or should I say locked joint-to-joint, from early on. In 527, the Buddhist patriarch, the head honcho of what is called Mahayana Buddhism, left India and moved to China. His name was Bodhidharma, known as Damo in Chinese or Daruma in Japanese. Legends say that when he reached the Shaolin temple, he saw the monks there were wasted, withered weaklings, a result of too much sitting around meditating. He taught martial arts, the legend continues, to strengthen their bodies so that they could meditate more effectively. The legend is most likely a legend. There is a text of dynamic stretching, breathing exercises, and strength conditioning known as the bone marrow washing classic, and it is attributed to Bodhidharma. However, the earliest copy of the text appears only a thousand years after the death of the patriarch. Nevertheless, Shaolin monks gained a reputation for their fighting when they successfully managed to fight off the bandits and raiders who tried to pillage the temple. During the many tumultuous times in Chinese history, where one imperial family falls and eventually gets replaced by another, the Shaolin were noted to be particularly good at siding with the right person in the battles of succession. This made them favored by many emperors and feared by many others. By the 17th century, the Shaolin was renowned for its Buddhism and its fighting, particularly with the staff. Their renown and their ability to kick ass placed them under suspicion. In the 17th century, or maybe 18th, the records are spotty. the Qing government raided and closed down the Shaolin for supposed anti-Qing and anti-Manchu activity. Those that survived and escaped the raid became masters of different styles, traveling around the country teaching whoever they could. Then, the 20th century. The 20th century wasn't kind to the Shaolin. Suffering from neglect, the monastery was all but closed down, forgotten, until Hong Kong movies revived it. Yes, the success of movies from Hong Kong about Shaolin actually contributed to the restoration of the temple. In 1982, a movie called Shaolin Temple caused a renewed interest in the place. It also introduced the world to a martial arts champion-turned-actor. Jet Li. Here's a description from the book Chinese Martial Arts from Antiquity to the Late 21st Century. When the martial arts movie company went to Shaolin to shoot on location in 1981, the temple was entirely run down and defunct as either a religious or martial arts center. The movie was extremely successful and it attracted Chinese and foreign martial arts students and tourists to Shaolin. Several monks and a number of martial artists claiming some connection to Shaolin martial arts re-established Buddhist worship and teaching of martial arts at or near the temple. While Buddhist worship expanded slowly, martial arts teaching and tourism exploded. Most of the martial arts school were only near the temple rather than being part of it, and even those martial artists practicing in the official training facility had no religious training. The Shaolin Wushu Center was built by the Henan provincial government to promote tourism in 1989. At the same time, troops of Shaolin monks performed around the world. Martial arts in Shaolin, as their exemplar and putative source, became popular, recognizable, and positive representations of China. End quote. So here we have another aspect of the Kung Fu movies. Behind the visceral violence of a good punch, there's a tradition. Actual martial art practitioners like Jet Li, Gordon Liu, and Lau Karlong used movies as a vehicle to express what they've learned and what they've idealized. Lao Karlong passed away in 2013. To the end of his life, he was a passionate defender of the martial arts. Quote, Before he died, Lao said in an interview, No one cares about this stuff anymore, but I've always had Kung Fu. It's given me spirit and strength, and it's taught me to be sincere and honest. This is the morality of Kung Fu. Unquote. Things were chugging along, but since Bruce Lee's death in 1973, Kung Fu films missed the major recipe for success a superstar. The industry decided to find a solution in the most bizarre way something called Bruce Ploitation. These refer to multiple actors trying to imitate Bruce Lee and ape his success. You got Bruce Lee, Bruce Lai, Brutally. Bruce Liang, Bruce Tai, Bronson Lee. Bruce Plotation reached its most grotesque in the release of an edited version of Game of Death. Game of Death was the movie Bruce Lee was working on before he died and would have been his allegorical tale of his philosophy. The edited Game of Death took clips from the movie and completely reworked it. In probably the most exploitative of Bruce Plotation moves, The film stitched together live footage of the actual autopsy and funeral of the actor. Yeah, the movie is not much liked by hardcore fans. An incomplete but edited version of Game of Death came out a few years later. That's where we get the iconic Bruce Lee yellow jumpsuit from. That's where the trope of moving up floors and encountering different martial arts comes from. That's also where the incredible fight with Karim Abdul-Jabbar. Ironic that some of the most recognizable aspects of Bruce Lee were public only after his death. Trying to replace a unique star by creating multiple carbon copies went about as well as you might imagine it did. It seemed impossible for Kung Fu to find the one with the it factor, someone with the aura of celebrity, and hopefully, another global icon. Impossible, that is, until 1978. Jackie Chan was born in Hong Kong in 1956 to a poor family. When Jackie was seven, his parents moved to Australia to pursue work opportunities, but they realized they couldn't afford to take care of the young boy abroad. So his parents signed him up for a boarding school at the Peking Opera Academy. Peking Opera, one of the major theatrical arts, had a rigorous training regimen to get the most high stakes, dangerous stunts out of their students. And Jackie Chan proved to be an exceptional student and moved up to the Seven Lucky Fortunes, the best of the best of performers. But like others his age, he wasn't interested in breaking into the opera scene. That world was old, dying. He wanted to get into movies. Jackie Chan and his fellow students did stunt work around the city, including getting his ass kicked by Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon. Jackie Chan really wanted to break into movies, but studios wanted to mold him into somebody else. He was originally one of the many Bruceploitation actors. Fist of Fury director Lo Wei hired Jackie Chan to play the sequel, New Fist of Fury. This would have been Chan's inauguration as the new Bruce Lee. If you've ever watched a Jackie Chan movie and haven't seen New Fist of Fury, sit back and try to imagine Jackie Chan playing the serious, cold-blooded, rage-filled martial arts killer of Fist of Fury. Can you imagine it? No? Well, neither did the audiences of the time. Nevertheless, Lo Wei insisted that this was the right path. With every mediocre movie released, Chan was getting more and more disillusioned with the business. Jackie Chan recounts the turning point of his career in his autobiography, Never Grow Up. Quote, I'd already been to hell and back as a martial artist, fight director, and actor, and I still hadn't made a name for myself. I was having a rough time under contract with Lo Wei, starring in film after film I didn't want to make. I could clearly see the problems with them. But no one wanted to listen to what I had to say. I wasn't allowed to challenge the producers and directors or helm any films myself. Then, one day, the independent film producer, Mr. Ng Si Yuan, came to see me and said he wanted to borrow me from Lo Wei to make a new movie. As far as I was concerned, working with a new producer could be a chance to break out of the Lo Wei formula and get a fresh start. If you had a choice, what sort of movie would you make? He asked frankly. I didn't answer right away. Every producer in the past had told me that my opinion was worthless and that I should just listen quietly to my elders. After a pause, I said, Mr. Ng, right now, everyone's trying to turn me into the next Bruce Lee and I've been forced to go along with it. But it will never work. He's a legend and no one could ever surpass him. So why don't we go down an entirely different path? I can tell that Mr. Ng agreed with me. I stood up to explain what I meant with movement and expressions. Bruce Lee always kicked high, but I keep my legs low to the ground. Bruce Lee would scream and roar while fighting in order to demonstrate his power and rage. But I prefer to cry out and pull faces to show how much pain I'm in. Bruce Lee is superhuman in the audience's eyes, but I just want to be a regular guy. I want to play ordinary, flawed people who sometimes despair. They aren't heroes. There are things they can't do. When my little performance was done, Mr. Ung came to me and shook my hand. You're absolutely right. That's the sort of film we'll make. In that spirit, I entered collaboration with Ng Si Wen. In quick succession, we made Snake in the Eagle Shadow and Drunken Master. Both films were hugely successful and even surpassed Bruce Lee's numbers. Just like that, I was no longer box office poison. After all those years of failure, seemingly overnight, I was a hit. End quote. Now we have the next step in the evolution of the Kung Fu genre, the Kung Fu comedy. I talked earlier about how Bruce Lee and Wave the Dragon found common ground in comedy and fighting, but the two were still kept separate in that movie. Drunken Master is a perfect illustration of the change. First, in the character Chan plays, a childish, carefree, bratty character, he's selfish, egoistical, is very inappropriate with girls, and in a comedic twist they always end up fighting back. But when push comes to shove, he is there to defend the weak and downtrodden. Sounds familiar? The character Chan played in his early movies served as a template, a character type that was much imitated, especially in Japanese manga and anime, including Dragon Ball. Oh, and who is this character that Jackie Chan plays in Drunken Master? Just a certain Wong Fei Hong. In a nice twist, the progenitor of the Kung Fu series now lent his name to the new genre of comedy Kung Fu. Wong fei Hung meets the legendary master of drunken style boxing and goes through equally funny and grueling training scenes to prepare himself to fight against a dangerous assassin. Wong fei Hung learns a technique called the 8 drunken gods. In a brilliant and hilarious 11th hour turn, when Wong meets the assassin, he's forgotten the 8th technique and has to improvise his own parody of the technique which eventually defeats his perplexed opponent. By the 80s, the kung fu comedy was king. Jackie Chan's colleague of the Seven Lucky Fortunes, Sammo Hung, also acted, directed, produced, and choreographed a slew of comedies and parodies. Even Lau Kar Long got in on the action. Compare 36 Chambers released in 1978 and Return of the 36 Chambers released in 1980. The latter is much more comedic, as Gordon Liu starts off playing an impersonator of Sante and tricks people with some hilarious parodies of wirework and fake martial arts. Jackie Chan moved to the US to try his luck filming movies there, but he seemed to embody the spirit of if at first you don't succeed. Because just like his first forays in Hong Kong movies, his early work stateside bombed. During his downtime, Chan studied not only martial arts but went back to physical comedy of the silent movie era. He scrutinized the likes of Harold Lloyd, Charlie Chaplin, and Buster Keaton in order to improve his reaction time and expressivity. He learned a few lessons in comedy and stunts from those movies. Jackie Chan tightly controlled every aspect of his body to maximize the impact of a hit. Fight scenes were kept so tight that action and reaction looked almost immediate. Even his famous big floppy hairstyle is deliberately kept so that it can whip around whenever he gets hit. And let me get a bit of a rant here. These days you hear stories of action stars putting it in their contract that they can't appear to take too many hits. That they must seem cool and dominant at all times. And that's so… boring. It's refreshing to hear about action heroes really wanting to deliver the best for the movies rather than their own brand. Not that Jackie Chan is humble or anything, far from it. His personal life is filled with scandal. Recently his controversial stances have had some in Hong Kong lose a lot of appreciation for their action star. But I digress. It's a very interesting contrast. Bruce Lee the Invincible Jackie Chan, The Vulnerable. But one important thing that Jackie Chan did learn from Bruce Lee. International appeal. Even before his big break in Hollywood, Chan's movies went across the globe. He traveled to locales such as Yugoslavia, Spain, and Namibia, and populated his movies with a multi-ethnic cast. He cultivated a broad audience. He was the everyman hero whose antics and physical comedy transcended borders. Jackie Chan returned to Hong Kong and worked on more hits, including his Police Story trilogy, and frequently collaborated with Sammo Hung. Golden Harvest in the 80s had entered a new phase as well. It had a whole new set of stars. Actors were international now. Cynthia Rothrock, American martial artist, made a splash with Michelle Yeoh in her 1985 debut, Yes, Madam. Instead of historical movies featuring martial arts schools, you had movies in a contemporary setting. The emphasis was now on stunts. Wild, insane, audacious stunts with reckless disregard for the safety of anyone involved. 80s Hong Kong was a unique moment in history. No one would dare be so reckless with their stunts ever again. More than 20 years after Bruce Lee's death, a second wave of Kung Fu craze swept the world. Jackie Chan triumphantly returned to Hollywood, now ready to become a household name. The late 90s saw filmmakers from around the world absorbing new lessons from the Hong Kong action scene to refine their works. Stunt choreographers from Hong Kong went to Hollywood and changed the vocabulary of action movies. Notable among these is Wu Ping, who coordinated the action scenes of many flicks such as Jackie Chan's Drunken Master. He was hired to work on the much imitated The Matrix and its sequels. Gently premiered in Hollywood with Lethal Weapon 4, Jackie Chan continued making hits such as the Rush Hour series. Kung Fu flicks of varying degrees of quality dominated the 2000 action scenes, which culminated in 2008 with Kung Fu Panda. Before, most Hollywood fight scenes looked like a pub brawl. A lot of punching, grunting, huffing, and throwing around. Effective, but inelegant. Powerful, but not very interesting to look at. They also didn't tell much of a story. When Jackie Chan, Bruce Lee, Sammo Hong, Gordon Liu, Jet Li, or any other Kung Fu star step into the arena. An entire story arc appears before your eyes. Their fighting techniques wasn't just as a method of disposing their enemy, but an expression of their characters. Other countries learned the lesson and started making movies that showcased their own martial arts traditions. Kung Fu was a new genre that grew out of a certain context from its own history, evolved as more movies were made and new stars joined the team, and then became part of cinematic history. It inspired other movie industries to follow the example. Give a template for action and fight scenes beyond the borders. Now other movies wanting to create uh, movies showcasing their own martial arts traditions can draw on an already existing template, like the excellent Ong Bak did for Thai kickboxing. In Hong Kong, the 90s is usually regarded as the beginning of the end for their movie industry. There are a few reasons, but there's one we're concerned at right now. All the best directors, actors and choreographers move to Hollywood or mainland China creating a brain drain for Hong Kong. But that is not to say things weren't happening. Director Tsui Hark's much acclaimed Once Upon a Time in China is a perfect example. Once Upon a Time in China stars Jet Li as, wait for it, Wong Fei Hung. That's the original title of the series by the way, Wong Fei Hung. The series takes the fight stunts and historical injustices angle of old kung fu flicks and takes them to stunningly outrageous heights. Besides some of the most frantic, creative fight scenes ever, the movie leans hard on history. Wong Fei-Hung has fictional, anachronistic encounters with cults, heroes, pirates, and revolutionaries. The series has so much history crammed into it, you can need footnotes for all the blink-and-you'll-miss-it references. Some of the choices are downright delightful in how on-the-nose they are. In one scene, a captain has on his fan a transcription of the unequal treaties China was forced to sign so that he can remind himself of the injustices his country is going through every time he fans himself. It's outrageous, campy, insane, yet somehow works. Just what you'd expect from a Tsui Hark movie. Don't worry, we'll come back to him next episode. Another big production are the movies of Stephen Chow. Chow was already a household name for his wacky comedy. Although not a martial artist himself, Chow credited watching Bruce Lee movies as a kid for getting him excited about movies. He pays homage to his early Kung Fu influence in movies like Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle, both of which were huge hits around the world. In 2008, a new series of movies began. This time, Donnie Wen took the helm and plays the historical figure... Nope, this time it isn't Wong Fei Hung. Donnie Wen took the role of the Wing Chun grandmaster Ip Man. Ip Man was a man who witnessed the historical transformations of China in the 20th century and was a grandmaster and teacher much respected in Hong Kong. With four movies in the past decade with Donnie Wen's Ip Man and his host of spin-offs, one wonder if Ip Man isn't becoming the Wong Fei Hung of the 21st century. Let's end this episode by going back in time to the legendary origins of the Wing Chun style. This will cover many of the themes and history we've explored, so it will serve as a nice capstone. We're in China, late 18th century. The Qing send their army to destroy the southern Shaolin Temple for their supposed anti-government activities. Five abbots of high martial arts abilities, the five elders, flee the temple and scatter across the land. One of these elders is a nun named Ngwi. Ngwi was a martial arts genius. There are at least half a dozen martial arts styles attributed to her and she had personally mastered maybe a dozen more. There's one style we're focused on now. This style doesn't have a name yet. The inspiration came when Ngwi was contemplating a problem. How could someone of much smaller stature stand a chance against much bigger opponents? Being a nun surrounded by bigger men, she knew that people of different attributes can't pick up the same martial arts. She wanted to find a style that would suit someone who was smaller and more vulnerable. All this was on her mind when she chanced upon a crane and snake fighting. Seeing the wavy, zigzaggy patterns to strike the dodges gave her an idea. But now, she's fled the ransacked Shaolin and is hiding away in a small temple. There she befriends a young village girl by the name of Yim Wing Chun. Wing Chun also had a problem. A local bully was forcing himself on her, threatening the safety of her family if she doesn't agree to marry him. A real charmer of a guy. Ng wei issues a challenge. If Wing Chun can beat the big oaf in a martial arts contest, then he has to leave her alone. Except, Wing Chun had never fought a day of her life. How could this young demure girl defeat a larger, rougher opponent? Ng Wei applied her theories for when she saw the snake and crane fight. She and Wing Chun train together every day in a small, lonely temple. On the day of the challenge, Wing Chun meets her opponent and defeats him. The man, ego and bones bruised, agrees to leave Wing Chun alone. Wing Chun eventually does marry, and she and her husband continue studying under Ngui. They named their style Wing Chun, as Ngui and the husband agree that she was the better practitioner. From then, Wing Chun became a symbol for the weak and downtrodden against the bullies and oppressors. Wing Chun spread into branches and lineages. A style of Wing Chun was practiced by an operatic troupe known as the Red Boat. Under the guise of theatrical training, the troupe learned Wing Chun as part of the growing anti-Qing revolutionary movement. Time carries on and the discipline passes out to Ip Man, who moved to Hong Kong during one of the many migration waves. There he taught his students in his little makeshift studio. One of the students frequenting the studio was a young, brash actor and aspiring martial artist. The young man was hated by his fellow students, first of all because he was a bit of a nuisance and a prankster, but also because he had European blood in his lineage. Not being pure Chinese should disqualify him for practicing the martial arts, they argued. Ip Man disagreed, but pretended to acquiesce while taking the young student aside and setting him up in private lessons. The young man was taught not only Wing Chun, but also an appreciation for Eastern philosophy. And as you may have guessed by now, the young man that Ibman Man took under his tutelage was Bruce Lee. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.